Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Leads you to praise God all day long. If you can grasp what Christ has done for you, then I will guarantee that you will sing like a bird. You will praise God continually. You'll rejoice forevermore. Last Tuesday, when we were discussing worry at our prayer meeting, we, I asked the group, what would you like me to preach on? And a number of them said, we want you to preach on justification by faith. Well, that's music to my ears. And maybe I primed the pump just a little bit with them. But anyway, I was delighted, so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to deal with one of the most dangerous doctrines in Scripture. Now, I want to say right at the beginning that all doctrine is dangerous. Right, Jim? If you say so, Pastor. <laughs> all right, Jim's looking puzzled there. It's dangerous if you don't understand it correctly, and it's certainly dangerous if you apply it in the wrong way. And I think when I look at last night, I was reading a chapter in the great controversy on John Huss. And the reason I read about John Huss is because I knew that Ellen said something about justification by faith and that man. And I wanted to just kind of refresh myself a little bit better. John Huss was a reformer with a Catholic background, and he discovered certain truths, just like Luther, that really troubled him. And he paid his life, he laid down his life for those truths. And one of them one of the most important truths that you'll ever understand is this doctrine of justification or righteousness by faith. Both terms, justification and righteousness, are synonyms. So you may hear me use those terms. You may hear me use the word gospel or good news. But we're basically talking about one thing, what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. That's basically what we're talking about this morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, which is probably the clearest exhaustive uh, material in Scripture on righteousness by faith, the book of Romans. We also have some material in Galatians and, and in Philippians, but I think Romans is a good place to start. I'm going to bow our heads for prayer. Gracious God, here we are, your people, your children, opening your word this morning. We've already asked, Lord, that you will anoint our thoughts and my words this morning, and you'll teach us your ways. We want to, we're here to worship you, Lord, to learn truth and to live for truth, and if so be, to lay down our lives as Huss did. I thank you, Lord, for raising up godly, imperfect men like us, and for strengthening them within so that they can stand strong in the evil day. Be with us this morning through your Holy Spirit, and may we rejoice in Christ forevermore. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, is there anybody who doesn't know where the book of Romans is? Let's take the Bible in the pew and give you a page number. So nobody can say they didn't know where to find it. 
And this is on page 1746, 1746, the book of Romans. Now, this is a massive subject, and I really am not going to go into a lot of detail today. I hope I don't have any of your heads spinning from information. I really want to get across what I think the basic concept is in justification by faith. If you go to Romans chapter 1, Paul clues us in early on in this chapter. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So if I was into marking my Bible, which I learned after a number of years sometimes was not the best thing to do, um, unless I was willing to change my Bible every six months, then the gospel of God is a phrase that I would understand. So the gospel of God is the good news of the life, especially the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. And the apostle Paul, just like Huss and Wycliffe and, and others, uh, laid down their life, laid down his life, for the gospel of God. Uh, roll your eyes over to verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Does God want all people to be saved? Are you sure about that? Are you doing your best to tell people about how to get saved? I'm uh, not so sure about that one. A bit quieter on that one. All right, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it works, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for Jew and Gentile, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is rich, written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the reason that this is so important, and here it's like, He's stating his thesis. So verses 16 and 17, this is the basic point here. It's about the gospel, and it's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's about a righteousness that is revealed. And even though he's not explaining that in this verse, later throughout the book, he will do that very thing. Why is this so important? Well, the next verse, verse 18, look at that. The wrath of God, the anger of God against sin, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on to give this explanation of, of the implications of the wrath of God. Now, you're not able to read all of this, and I'm certainly not able to to read these verses to you, but we have a big section on the wrath of God. All humanity, this is important, all humanity is under the wrath of God unless they're in Christ. No amens on that one. Is that bad news? I suppose it is. All humanity is under the wrath of God unless they're protected in Christ. 
How many of you believe that? Now, think of all humanity. That's a lot of good people. And obviously, it's a lot of wicked people, but it's ungodly people. That's what we are before we come to Jesus, no matter how prim and proper we are. The Bible teaches we are wicked and ungodly until we come to Jesus Christ. And to be wicked and ungodly means that you're outside of a right relationship with God. And it's just, it's just bad news from that point on. So, let's jump over as he explains in chapters 1, 2, and, and part of chapter 3 about all of these people that are ungodly, and we have to include ourselves in that. Because it says there in um, the end of chapter 3, or near the end of chapter 3, um, that we all fall short in verse 23 of the glory of God. And then in verse 20, and 19 and 20, the whole world is held accountable to God. No one will be declared righteous in, in God's sight by observing the law, by doing good things. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, I want you to get the first point down, is that the whole world, the whole of humanity, no matter how religious, no matter how pious, no matter how sincere, is outside of a right relationship with God. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit understood that, and so God sent Jesus Christ to do something about that, and to change that paradigm. And so it says there in verse 21, this is an important passage, but now a righteousness from God, apart from works, law, doing good, has been made known to which the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, testify this righteousness from God comes through faith. This morning we're talking about justification or righteousness by faith. So be noting these faith words. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short, continue to fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So let me put that in my own words. Because humanity was outside of that right relationship with God, was considered wicked, ungodly, an enemy of God, there's the few, fewer choice terms that are used, Christ had to come to change that. And the way that he did that is explained in verse 25, where it says, that God presented him, God sent Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. In some of your Bibles, it will say propitiation. Not a word that we use every day, is it? So here it says sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And when it uses the word sacrifice of atonement, we think of the animal sacrifices that they had there in Old Testament times where God said, make me a sanctuary. And then they had the, this Levitical sacrificial system. Most of you understand something about that. All pointing forward that one day God would send his son to be the sacrifice for the human race. 
And of course, they had the emphasis on the shedding of blood and the life, the innocent life being given for the guilty one. And then it says, just let me finish this thought here, um, through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. I don't want to spend a lot of time on every verse there, but I want to get a few concepts across. God has to be just. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God could not ignore sin. Yes, he could do it on a temporary basis. The Bible does talk about that. But ultimately, every sin has to be paid. The wages of sin is death. There is a payday for sin. And the good news is, good news from our point of view, that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on Calvary's cross, that was payday for the human race. That the wrath of God came upon the Lord Jesus Christ in its totality against sin. So that all sin, past, present, future sin, every sin was covered by the blood of Christ on Calvary's cross. The good news is, then the wrath or the anger of God against sin, hellfire, whatever we want to call it, does not come on humanity if they trust in the provision or the gift that has been given. See how important it is to believe in Jesus Christ? No, no point in asking people to believe in Jesus Christ unless we bring out very strongly that the law sets the standard, that we've all broken that law, we, are all, we all hang our heads, we're all condemned. If we don't believe that, why would we flee to Jesus? Because the whole point of Jesus is to come and save sinners. If we don't think that we're a sinner heading for hell, then there's a good chance we'll never really understand and never embrace the Lord Jesus Christ the way that we should. The good news is that God has found a just way. It was, it, was, it was difficult for God, if I can put it in such language, to forgive humanity. It took the life of his son to do that. Now, let me ask you, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, were there any sins that were not covered? No, the Bible makes that very clear, that, that the sins were covered, and that this is a sacrifice once and for all. Jesus Christ had to taste death and experience death in its totality, but he would never have to do that a second time. We don't ever want to get into a way of thinking where, where we're, we're sacrificing Jesus every week when we take the Mass or the Communion or where, whatever else other uh, religious things that we do. So it was once and for all, and it was total. This was kind of hard for the church members in, in when, it, when the writer to the Hebrews, they somehow they just didn't quite get that, and they wanted to go back to Judaism, and, um, and, and they're told to refocus, just like somebody said in the prayer request, refocus, get the focus on the most important thing. You can't come to Jesus and walk away. There is no other provision. 
It's Jesus or nothing. Oblivion. Okay, so those, that's a few thoughts there in Romans chapter 3. And then he takes the whole of chapter 4. So in, in many respects, chapter 4 is probably one of the clearest explanations of justification by faith. And he uses the example of Abraham, especially, most of the chapter is on Abraham, and David. So Abraham was given amazing promises, and he believed those promises, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So the only way that a human being is right in God's eyes is not by doing thousands of good things, even though God and I and the Seventh-day Adventist church would encourage you to do as many good things as you can crowd into this life. The problem with our good things, good works, is they are never perfect. If they were perfect, if we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our mind, all of the time, and our neighbor as ourselves, then it would be different. But no human being outside of Jesus has ever done that. So as we said, all are sinners, broken the law of God, and we all need saving from the wrath of God. Now we go to chapter 5. And he uses the word therefore. You're always looking for the therefores in Paul's writings. At least I am. Because I know he's summarizing something. And I think he has laid down in, in um, those early chapters the problem, sin, the solution, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, having eternal life through him, and now I think what he's doing is going into some of the benefits of that. So I, before we go in, re, I read chapter 5, I want to share a few things with you that I wrote down. And um, some of it might go over your head, but they're from two different authors. One is a Seventh-day Adventist author who I respect very much, and another one is a, is a non-SDA author who I also respect on this topic of justification by faith. So I wanted to, I wanted to write down, it take me just a couple of minutes to share this, some of the main headings that they think are important with this topic of justification by faith. I want you to see that it's kind of broader than many of us normally think of. So the first thing that we write down from the Seventh-day Adventist author is justification is expressed as a right relationship. So, when we're ungodly and wicked and enemy, we're outside of a right relationship. We're in a wrong relationship with God. When we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're brought into a right relationship with God. And one of the texts that was used there was Romans 4, 5. Turn to Romans chapter 4, and verse 5. And somebody in a nice loud voice, read that text, please. Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who did not work, but believed on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Okay, so God will account as righteous somebody that is classified as ungodly. 
So the ungodly is one negative side of the relationship. And read it again. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Okay, and the other, so the opposite of ungodliness here is righteousness. So which would you sooner have? Ungodly or righteous? Okay, now this is not talking here in Romans chapter 4. It's not talking of uh, the born-again experience, even though that's incredibly important. It's talking about a change of status. Change of status. This is something that um, when we think of relationship, this is the way we need to first think of relationship. So some would say, I believe it's Ellen White that would do this, but some would say justification by faith is like the ticket to get on the train. It's your entrance, it's your key, it's your introduction to this world of righteousness. It's a forensic statement, actually, justification. It's, it's, it's legal language, law room language. It's the judge which this whole trial now in South Africa, that's in the news so much. I'm amazed how much it's, it's in the news. They don't have a jury to decide that. They have a judge. And the judge took, was it three or four days just to find, to figure out whether this man should have bail or not. And the judge is going to listen to all the evidence and he's going to give his verdict. Well, God has given his verdict on Calvary. And that is, whosoever, the most ungodly, nastiest person on planet Earth, the thief on the cross, is in. No time for sanctification, as we normally think of it in doing good works. He has the ticket in because he's trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay. A right relationship. Secondly, justification as acquittal. Like the judge will say, guilty or not guilty. Condemned or not condemned. Justification as a reckoning of righteousness. So justification, can, we can think of forgiveness, but we should also look on the other side of the coin where God says, I declare, I state before the whole universe that this ungodly person who is trusting in Jesus is now declared righteous. The idea there is not that they're changed in, into being righteous, but the judge has declared, he's made a statement on their status, their standing. Now, it's, it, it's also true, of course, that once they're declared righteous, they literally are brought into the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit kicks in and we will see that in Romans chapter 5, and, and the whole work of becoming like Christ, holiness, sanctification, all of that process begins. There's no separation in time, but there has to be a distinction made in understanding these concepts. All right, so, so the judge... Now, I don't, I don't care, and I don't know. We're all different, I suppose. Whether you feel righteous or not, what counts is what the judge says. That's what counts, what God thinks about you. Justification as divine forgiveness, another category. Justification as eschatological life and new creation. What do we mean by that? 
that we're a new creation in Christ. It's spoken of that way in some text. And I'm not going to give you the text. It would take too long. Justification is an exchange of lordships. This is one of my favorite concepts uh, developed in Romans chapter 6. We're no longer under the Lord, the lordship of Satan and sin and death and so on. We've been transferred from that. And we're now under the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember I've worked with some evangelists who have been so bothered that so many Christians just think Christianity is squeezing your way through the pearly gates that they've made this very strong emphasis, yes, but he's also your Lord. Now, of course, in Scripture, there's really no separation between Jesus' Savior and Jesus' Lord. But sometimes you need to just spell it out. Hey, he's in charge. You're under his jurisdiction. This is why it's so serious for a Christian to mess around with sin. You have a new master. He's leading you into a life of holiness. Play around with sin. You better believe that God is going to bring you into line. God is going to discipline you. The Bible talks a lot about that. Justification as community or, or has a corporate dimension, which in our very individualized world here in the West, we often don't think of it that way, but in the Middle East, very much big on community. And finally, justification as the reality of righteousness. Now I'm going to go to the other person, see if any of them are similar. One, justification concerns our relationship with God. Okay, we've talked about that briefly, the relationship of a holy God with guilty rebels. Two, justification is the verdict of God, the judge declaring us acquitted and accepted. So not just acquitted, but embraced. It is God not reckoning our sins against us, but rather putting his own righteousness to our account and delivering us from condemnation. So there you can find some illustrations like, like uh, no money in your bank, you're bankrupt or whatever. The, the banker knows that. He's not too happy about it. He's losing sleep at night because you're overdrawn in your bank account, spiritually speaking now. I know you're so flushed, you guys. You don't ever experience anything like that. But, and then one day, some generous benefactor puts a million dollars in your account. You've done nothing to deserve it. You're just the recipient of grace, but the facts are the million dollars is there. And so, that, so your banker starts treating you differently. The tone of his voice, he almost wants to hug you. That's not a very professional thing to do, maybe, but he wants to hug you because now your status is what? Not pauper anymore, but millionaire. Okay, you've done nothing to affect that situation, right? Pure grace on the part of the wealthy individual. Three, justification on the is, uh, is on the basis not of what sinners have done or can do, but of what Christ did as their representative and substitute. In his life, he gave perfect obedience to God so that in his death, he may pay the penalty for others' sin and make a perfect sacrifice for them. Four, God justifies sinners not because of anything about them, but purely and wholly because of his grace. Five, justification comes into experience not by anything the individual does, but only through trusting Christ. Earlier in our class, we talked about Carlisle B. Haynes this morning. A few weeks ago, I talked about George Knight. Most of you can kind of remember the gist. Two Seventh-day Adventist individuals who spent years in a spiritual wilderness. And after 15 years for Carlisle B. Haynes, 
working in all levels of the Seventh-day Adventist church, he suddenly realized he was a lost man. Praise God, he suddenly realized how sad that he lost those years. What kind of ministry do you, do you, do you have if you're not a saved man? And the other one, George Knight, which we shared recently, um, comes to the Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic series. All the truths seem to match up. All the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle seem to fit. He becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. He gets baptized. Looks like nobody discipleship him. Big mistake. Becomes a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Eventually, eventually hands his credentials in three times, third times, three strikes, and you're out. Third time, it's accepted. And then he goes into his spiritual wilderness. And God, in his mercy, after some time, picks him up and connects him to Jesus Christ. How can you be so bright? Both of these men were bright enough and yet miss. But you know Nicodemus did the same thing? Nicodemus, you must be born again. He missed something, didn't he? Anyway, justification comes, uh, just six, justification brings peace with God and access to Him and leads to adoption and ultimately glory, peace with God. Make note of that because we're going to see that in these verses that we're going to read. Seven, the faith that justifies issues in a life which grows in Christ-likeness and expresses itself in love and obedience. So here's a byproduct, an important byproduct of whether a person is truly justified. How do you know? By the life they live. If there's no fruitage, something's wrong. Now, of course, it has to be godly fruitage. It has to be the right fruitage. It has to be Christ-like, spirit-filled fruitage. But that needs to be there, too. Eight, justification brings assurance of salvation. And I would put a big circle around that one because it's so huge. Every pastor knows this is a major problem in every congregation. Why are the saints not rejoicing all the time? Because we're missing something. doesn't mean we're not Christians, but it means either we're not understanding something, we're not applying something in the correct way. So here he brings out assurance of salvation and support in spiritual depression. Nine, justification undergirds the whole Christian life and helps in all its experiences and problems. And ten, Justification is crucial for the life and worship of the church and for its task of evangelism. And I would, I mean, you could add to this list yourself. You could probably think of some other areas too. But can you see how big it is, how broad it is, this topic? Paul spends chapters, whole sections of the book of Romans just nailing down this point. What does justification say? It tells you who you are. It tells you that you're a child of God. You're his son, you're his daughter. It's talking about how God treats you and sees you. He sees you in Christ. Probably Paul's favorite phrase. Constantly uses it in his writings. Our union with Christ. Okay, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, do you have 
this peace of God. Now, I think we should first think of it as all hostility is gone between you and God. So that's maybe the first way that we should think of this peace of God. I don't think the emphasis here is necessarily on experiencing this peace of God, though I will say, if there's one word that I would pick out when I was converted, it would be the word peace. I could pick out the word joy. I certainly could say it just felt like God wrapped his arms of love around me. All of that would be correct. But I think if I had to go with one concept, it would be a peace that passes all understanding. You have, in a moment of time, gone from ungodly to righteous. No amens? Are you grasping the implications of this? Because I'll tell you something, folks. The devil will attack you over and over and over again in certain areas of your life if you're not nailing this one down. If you don't understand justification by faith, your mind will never be at rest. The first way to get this peace of God is through the mind, through understanding this concept of justification by faith. Makes all the difference in the world. The way you view God. If you believe that God will declare you righteous and treat you as a righteous person, and he really means it when he says you're in the family of God, then you'll have peace, or you should have peace, if you really believe it. But if you feel you're on trial, if you think it's conditional upon your behavior in any way, shape, or form, this can, be some, such a, this can become such a problem if some of your theology is not correct, that the largest denomination on planet Earth, and I don't know how many that is, but it's hundreds of millions of people, minimize, take away any assurance of salvation. You have to depend on the church. You have to depend on the priest. You have to depend on the system. And even when you die, there's still no assurance. Because we invent a place called purgatory that we can put you. So our relationship with God, our mind should be at rest if we understand this doctrine. Despite the fact that we still sin as Christians, are there any Christians here this morning that have ceased to sin? The fact that we still sin, does God still love us as much? Well, if he could love us when we were ungodly, you'd better believe that he loves us when we're considered righteous by him. 
were considered righteous by him, because that's what the teaching says, and yet we still sin. Does God want us to sin? Just read 1 John if you're not clear on this. No, God doesn't want to. God wants to put His power, His strength within us so that we resist sin. But if we do sin, John says, we do have an advocate with the Father. God doesn't abandon us because we mess up in our behavior. He never accepted us on the basis of our behavior, and He'll do everything He can to keep us close to Him and to live a righteous life. But your daily behavior does not affect your standing with God. You can't be in one moment the relationship and outside the next moment in the relationship. There has to be some sense of security for you to have confidence in this relationship. And some of the greatest, some of the greatest moments in your life, this is a strange way to put it, or when you learn the lessons from sin. Now, God forbid that any of us should just say, well, I'm going to sin so I can learn some important spiritual lessons. But God can bring good out of bad, right? In fact, that's one of the greatest tests of whether you understand justification by faith is when you're on your face in sin. How do you process that? What goes on in your head? Are you like Adam and Eve, running away from God, trying to cover yourself with fig leaves? Or are you brave enough, clear enough in your mind to say, yes, <coughs> yes, Satan, you got me there. You tricked me there. But I'm still in a right relationship with God. Is it a dangerous doctrine? <coughs> I don't believe anyone is truly preaching the gospel unless somebody says to them, what? <coughs> Shall we continue in sin that, so that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1. How does Paul answer that? God forbid! You've missed the point. But he knew that there would be some people that would say, if we don't have the law, the law, the law, then you're just encouraging people to live a life of sin. So we should have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace <coughs> in which we now stand. This word access is an interesting one. Probably a better translation, something that would be clearer, is introduction. Before, while you were ungodly, you had no entrance into the presence of God. Through the death of Christ and believing and trusting in, in that to cover your sin, you now have introduction to the majesty of the universe. Hence, the book of Hebrews says, come boldly not timidly, come boldly to the throne of grace. In a sense, you have every right to be there 
with Almighty God because of what Jesus has done. So he talks of that as access in this translation, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. By the way, that is developed in Romans chapter 8. And Romans uh, 6 and 7 are just detours to deal with objections to the teaching on justification by faith. Paul was a very wise teacher. And he would anticipate substantial objections to this teaching. So he deals with that in chapter 6 when he talks of, of the role of uh, our behavior and so on. And then in chapter 7, the role of the law. In chapter 8, he goes back to the benefits of justification by faith. There are, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And there never can be. There never can be any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And if you study those chapters of Romans, those at least the first eight chapters, just try your level best to understand what Paul is, is saying there. When you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Your status doesn't change depending on your behavior. It's, it's kind of back to front in the way that we normally think. We think that if we're doing well in our behavior, then the relationship should be strengthened should be better. And I suppose it is as far as our intimacy with God is concerned. But as far as our standing with Him, justification by faith says no. That's dependent on the behavior of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are in Him. All right, let's finish this off. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, character, and hope. Notice these words that are used here, hope and the glory of God and the love of God. You kind of see that in Corinthians, don't we? Faith, hope, and love. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. I have to wrap it up here for the sake of time, and it's a good point to end on. When you're introduced to Almighty God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and you're justified or declared righteous through faith, one of the ways, maybe the primary way that you know that is the Holy Spirit is poured out. He gushes. It's not sprinkling. It really is immersion in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember in John chapter 7, I believe it is, Jesus talks of a, of a, a, bur a fountain just bursting out from our belly? Do you remember that? When he's trying to help the disciples to understand what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out into their lives? That's how it is for the one who is justified by faith. And so all of these, this tremendous peace and presence of God that we should have when we're in a relationship with Him is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And let's remember who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is kind of like another Jesus. I mean, He's not Jesus, 
but he is continuing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, right? You and I respond to that message somehow, some way. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that draws us, he woos us, he attracts us to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who convicts us of sin. He's the one that leads us into truth. He's the one that brings us, in a sense, into that right relationship with God. And so Paul will introduce this topic of the Holy Spirit here, and he will develop that in a big way when we get to chapter 8. Mm, this is good stuff. I don't mean this recorder in my mouth. But this is, this is stuff that just energizes me. How God can take the worst of the worst and in a moment of time completely transform them and declare them righteous and then treat them as righteous and fill them with His Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead dwelling within us. We have no excuses for not living up to our the Christ-like potential that Christ has called us to. Let's set the standard high because that's what God has done. It is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as it's possible for humanity to be. All that we should be in Jesus Christ is what we should be, right? Because everything has been provided that you and I need. The onus upon us is to dig these things out of Scripture. Let's think them through to their logical end. And then let's live this stuff. Because ultimately, that's what it's to be. The new life, the Christ life in us. One of the reasons that we see such a weak and enfeebled church is because many of us are not rejoicing in the Lord. We do not have this peace that passes all understanding. Somehow we feel that we're not quiet in. And justification by faith is saying, if you're believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, you're in. And if you look on yourself like a thief on the cross, you're in. If you look on yourself as the worst of the worst and you're trusting in Christ, you're in. And I tell you, if you're looking for a message to share, this gospel is really, really good news. If you're going to go from this building and going to start telling people to stop smoking, to stop drinking, to stop sleeping around, well, yes, you can do all of that, and maybe sometimes we should. Yeah, there's a lot of people doing it. We're not here to just point out sin. We're here to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, you can connect, and if God can use you to connect someone to Christ, then the ungodly behavior starts to change. One day I was swearing like a trooper. Yes, me. You're past the swearing. And the next day, it was offensive to me. What made the difference? The day before, I was in the camp of the ungodly. 
The day after meeting Christ, I'm in the camp of the righteous. What a difference. Surround yourself with godly people. If you want to be godly and you want to grow in godliness, surround yourself with the right people. Surround yourself with people who really know Christ and know what it is to be tempted and tested and to be triumphant in that. Read the right kind of literature, literature that will build you up in the faith, and you will stand strong, which is always Paul's emphasis that we must stand strong, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your goodness and your love for this great doctrine of justification by faith. Not a one of us would understand it, Lord, unless it was revealed to us in Scripture. Help us to nail it down, apply it to our lives, and live accordingly. And we thank you, Lord, for this tremendous gift, the gifts, the double gift of your Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.